This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially-strained situations – it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage 
coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But- <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Another little uh, myth for you is we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage, um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex. And they're actually having better sex, as they would rate it, than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said 
that of the singles, um, women who were be- ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. The strengths become the weaknesses. So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries, or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our, our past and our future. 
I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that, you know, they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you, you know, insight, the ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. More fun in just a few minutes. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We have, you know, a lagging interest in politics. I mean, I get why you don't love politics. Some do. And um, our guest, uh, we're getting on the phone, Dr. Lupia, is uh, has a great quote I heard him say. And I don't know if he was quoting someone else, but he, he basically believes there's two types of people. Those that are ignorant... Right. And then those that are delusional and think they know a lot more than they do. And so when it comes to politics, we probably have the same situation going on, right, where some are just flat out ignorant. They don't know what's going on. Really, they don't. They don't. They're not paying attention to it. They just think that this is a really crazy episode from reality television. The hiring of a president. Um, and then there's others who actually, you know, are maybe a little delusional thinking that they know so much. But they, they garner their information, and we talk about this a lot on the show. They've gathered their information from resources that totally jive with everything they think, right? They're, they're not gathering just facts and and neutral data. They tend to gather the data that's already been maybe twisted, maybe turned to the favor of of uh, their candidate or their persuasion. And so it's a, it's an interesting thing that we're dealing with. And in the end, though, the, the data tends to be showing that we're struggling to get voters to turn out. A Center for the Study of American Electorate in 2012 did a study, and their study shows that in 2000, 54.2% of the population – uh, turned out of the electorate turned out for the vote fifty four percent then in two thousand and four it went up to about sixty point four percent in two thousand eight sixty two point three percent that was when Barack Obama won right and he brought in so many more of the minority votes and and really lifted up the turnout and then in two thousand and twelve his second term voter um, turnout electorate turnout was fifty seven point five percent back down to uh, nearly what it was back in 2000, just a little bit better than that. So, And that was um, the whole you know, Romney run, right, against Obama. So it's, it's an interesting discussion. And uh, our, our next guest, Dr. Arthur Lupia, is um, going to be talking to us about this, about what do we do 
to inform the people about what's going on in the political world. His book is titled Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Anything we can do to increase the competency of voters is is going to be, I think, incredibly important to our democracy. Um, stick with us and and let's learn. Dr. Arthur Lupia, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. This is um, for me, uh, boy, what a what an important topic, and also timing probably couldn't be better. Um, talk to me, Dr. Lupia, about your book, Uninformed. I mean, 57.5% turnout in the 2012 election. Is that because the the voters are just – are they in a malaise? Do they just not care anymore? What do you mean when you talk about uninformed? Well, um, when we think about – you know, it's often easy to tell a story about those uninformed voters who aren't doing the right things, whether they're not turning out for elections or voting for the candidate that you don't like. Right. Um, but – but when we ask people, uh, there's really two types of people in America, and this is my starting point. Uh, there's one group of people who know very little about almost everything and recognize that, and the other group is delusional about how much they know. So let me explain that. Uh, every year, Congress passes between two and 300 laws, and your state legislature or mine passes two or 300 laws, and the city that I live in would pass 100 laws. And mm. even though I'm an expert in you know, political information, I couldn't name more than 10 of them in a given year. Right. And so uh, the issue isn't that, you know, there are some people who don't know things and there are some people who know everything. All of us don't know things. But now the opportunity is how do we give people the information they need to make good decisions? And that's what my book's about. That's a great point because it's, I mean, it, it, there's just too much to know. And I guess, too, it's we ha- we have to give them the information and we I guess we have to figure out what people really need to know, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not just what people need to know, because, you know, if you and I go to the voting booth and we have two choices, a chimp with a coin gets that right half the time. <laughs> so, you know, what we have to figure out is how to do better than that. But then the other key to it is how to give people the information that they need in a way that they'll actually want to pay attention to and think about and remember. And that's a really tricky part, but it's something that we can do. And it seems like of all times to do it, it's today because people can get more information about stuff they've never even wanted to know or know, know they needed to know just online. The technology's there. Yeah, that's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is that if, if you're a political geek, this is the best time in history right? because you, you can find so much about everything. The bad news is if you're not that interested in politics, some of those cat videos are really entertaining and you can watch them all day instead of learning anything about politics. And so one of the tricks now for people who want to educate people about you know, science or education or matters of faith or whatever it is, is to break through and to try and get, you know, give, it, give information to people in ways that they want to pay attention to, that's relevant to their lives and that they can actually use. Hmm. Is there a correlation, do you think, between this, um, this uh, lack of knowing and turnout? Uh, there's some correlation, but, you know, this is something people have studied over, over a long period of time. There's some people who don't know very much, and they don't care, and they don't turn out, and that's always been the case. There are some people who actually know quite a bit, and they're disaffected, and they just think their vote doesn't make a difference, and they stay away. So, you know, we have, we have both types. It, what is true is that when we have a political moment, 
where people think that the decision is really relevant to their lives and those of their families and communities, that's when you see turnout spike a bit. Mm. But, as, but as a general matter, um, there's a slight correlation between what we call knowledge and turnout, but it's not uh, determinative. Mm. What do you see? Uh, I mean, I've been dying to ask you this. Um, the, uh, okay, so the name of the book, Uninformed, Why People Do yep. Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. What's going through your head as you watch, let's just say, the last month of the primary process? Yeah. Um, well, you know, at, if we can talk about the last three months, yeah, we, started sure. with 17, we started with 17 candidates on the Republican side. And in the Republican Party for about 40 years, there's been a pretty significant division between what you might call establishment Republicans and movement conservatives about the role of government. I mean, they all disagree with the Democrats, but there's a pretty real disagreement. And over the last, let's say, since the, particularly since 2008, when we had the bailout that President Bush uh, had some things to do with, members of what we call the Tea Party or movement conservatives have been increasingly unhappy with the establishment Republicans. So that's been festering for a while. Governor Romney, uh, President Bush 43, Ronald Reagan, they're recent historical figures who have found a way to talk to both groups. But in this, uh, with 17 people, trying to talk to both groups proved to be a pretty bad strategy because to emerge from that mess, uh, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have some strong way to distinguish yourself. And Donald Trump did that, right? And so you had um, Governor Bush from Florida Marco Rubio trying to talk to both groups. You had Ted Cruz really just trying to talk to movement conservatives. But Donald Trump just tried an entirely different strategy, which was to break from the convention of those two wings of the Republican Party and speak directly to a set of disaffected people, mostly within the Republican Party, about their concerns, about their anxieties, give them very simple sound bites and strong conclusions. And when there are 17 people, if at the beginning you get 25 percent, which was mm. what Donald Trump got, you win. Yeah, every so time. That, yeah, so his move early on was – it's not about policy coherence. It's about distinguishing himself from the other 16, and he did that very well. Wow. Yeah, and, and I guess that, that really helped in the, in the broader race with 17. Do you think that helps when it's one-on-one? No, I think it's a, it's, it's a bit of a problem now. Um, what it did was really help. It helped him get a lot of the moderates out of the way. Uh, you know, I think it's why Governor Bush and some of the other uh, people who are from the, the establishment Republican wing, uh, you know, it's why they, they left the race pretty quickly. Yeah. But now when it's, it's one-on-one, it's tougher because um, now uh, Donald Trump is more likely to be called on some of the inconsistencies in his policy some of the ways in which he breaks with the different types of Republican orthodoxy. And there's not 16 other voices competing. Now there's just one. So I think that, and and you see Trump, I think, now thinking about changing his strategy a bit. So I don't think the primary strategy will get him very far. Hmm. Does does a, a process that we've been through, let's say the last three months, does it improve an informed electorate, or does it just confuse them more? Like Donald's been complaining about the ballot is rigged, the ballot processes or the delegate process is rigged, and um, you know we're not. And then we hear we're not a we're a republic, we're not a democracy. And then we also have Bernie Sanders on the side that's a socialist Democrat. I mean, it, so yeah. is it is it informing us, or because are, are people like taking these things and saying, okay, well, when they say he's a socialist, what does that mean? Or are we just 
confusing everybody. Well, both things are happening. With respect to the first part of your question, because we had you know, the possibility of a contested convention on the Republican side and you know, at least a close election on the Democratic side, there's been much more media attention to the roles of the primary process. And what's interesting about this is prior to this year, you know, the typical sell was come out to the primary, your vote matters, and we're going to you know, uh, bring about a nominee. And so it's really important that you vote. And now what people on both sides have recognized is, well, wait a minute, that's not exactly how it works. Right. And so I think, particularly on the Republican side, after you know the nomination contest blows over, there will be a significant debate, let's say early next year, about what the rules for 2020 are going to be, because a lot of people ha- have have now seen the you know the the the, gold, the Rube Goldberg device that's the Republican primary rules, and they're going to want some changes. Mm. Yeah. And again, disconnected from the event itself. I guess this is part of what's interesting is um, it doesn't seem like we have the information necessarily when we need it. We'll get it later or we'll get it way too early, never maybe in the moment. Um, We're speaking with Dr. Arthur Lupia, the author of the book Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and what we can do about it. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, also get into his solutions. Um, how do you inform uh, the electorate? And and how do you get people to get involved without like forcing it upon them, like mom used to do with spinach? Interesting. I mean, it's, it's good for you, but you may not like how it tastes. Stick with us. More with Dr. Arthur Lupia. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show, two types of people we were just taught by our, our guest, Dr. Arthur Lupia, who is a, the Hal R. Varian Collegiate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, and also the author of the book, uh, Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Two types of people, basically, those that, um, you know, that are uninformed that don't really know what's going on, and then those that are have kind of deluded themselves into believing that they know way more than they actually do. And those two combine to uh, to create a problem where we, we want an informed electorate, right? And yet 57.5% of uh, people turned out to vote in the 2012 election. Let's get back to Dr. Arthur Lupia, find out uh, what, what, what we can do about this. Dr. Lupia, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. This is, I think it's so important, and it seems so basic, and I think some people are maybe just are drawn to politics. They kind of like the issues, or they like the the debate about it, and maybe others are just not informed. Is that what you find? I mean, they're not informed, but not even caring about it. Yeah, I mean, there are different types. I mean, there are some people who really care about the policies, are are really public regarding, care about their communities, and see a life in public service as a way to, you know, not only help their communities, but to kind of, you know, advance themselves. There are other people who like the sport of it, who like the horse race, you know, who are excited about it in the way that you would be of on, um, you know, spectator sports. But then there are other people, you know, politics is 
issues become political when they get close to value conflicts within our society, different ways of looking at things. When we have an, <clears throat> an ethical or moral consensus, uh, we don't use politics anymore. We just say this is the right thing to do, and we, we go away from that. So when we get to these issues of like ethical or moral, moral conflicts, some people really don't like to think about it. It makes them uncomfortable, and so they stay away from politics that way. And then there are other people who don't think about any of it that deeply. It's just, it's just more fun to do other things. And so they yeah. are, they're out entirely. Like Candy Crush. Exactly. And, what could, and, and cat videos. That's such a good comment you made. Um, because that I guess that's it. We have all of this other information. But then um, our politicians will give us data. They'll, they'll throw out all of these facts, uh, I guess, in the desire to either, I guess, to inform us or is it to just create more smoke you know uh, statistics are used for different reasons um sometimes people want to use statistics to say look uh life is improving or we have a real threat and here's a way to think about it and if you love statistics that type of information can can be really helpful it can help you develop a strategy to try and improve quality of life uh, in other cases, uh, some people have trouble hearing statistics. You know, we, there's this saying, it's a little bit unfortunate, that, you know, a thousand suffering children is a statistic, one suffering child is a tragedy. Mm. Right? When we see a story of a child that's in danger, we want to do something. But sometimes when we hear that a thousand people, a child, children are suffering, well, that just becomes a number. And so uh, statistics are problematic in that way. And then, of course, people use statistics to try and obscure things. So you know, all of those things happen in government. At their best, they can really inform us about what we need to do. And isn't that the big point of your book? That Because you're drawing on more than just political science theory. You're drawing on psychology and attention span and political psychology. Uh, we, we may need to really relook at how we – are trying to get our uh, our electorate's attention, right, and how we educate them. Talk to us about some of your solutions that you propose in your book, Uninformed. Sure. So, well, you, you hit some of it right before the commercial break. You know, a lot of people who are involved in education, like myself, it's easy for us to tell ourselves a story that other people should be obligated to learn what we know. But that's not how brains work. We have so many things competing for our attention, not just cat videos and Candy Crush, but family concerns or sometimes, you know, our jobs and things of that nature. And political information is competing with all of that. So here's a short way to tell a longer story. If you want people to pay attention to politics, you have to find a way to make the information relevant to their core values, to their core concerns, in a way that, that, that people want to think about it. They, they want to take what you're saying and work it into their lives. So many times people like myself, we go in front of an audience and we just talk at people. Hmm. We just sort of give them information, and then we get frustrated with them if they don't listen. But a lot of the advice that I give is that a person like myself, before you encounter a group, you should really do a lot of listening, or you should really at least do a lot of learning in terms of why are these people in a room with me? Why have they come to this session, or why have they come to this website? And how can I be of service to them? And if I could think about how to be of service to an audience and in that moment give people information that they need to make better decisions, then I will have an audience, right? But if yeah. I just talk at you and, and tell you to eat your spinach, you'll nod because it's polite to do so, and then you'll walk away and think about something else. I forget about you. I guess that, that is, I guess, part of the power of being an influential person is knowing the pain of another and, I guess, being able to convey the pain. It's a, it's a huge thing, and and. 
so many times in politics we get so excited about our own point of view uh, or an issue that we that that we love or a candidate that we love that we forget what it's like to either not know about these things or to be against them. And so then we'll start talking to someone and, and telling them that they should like our candidate and the other person is offended or they just don't get what we're talking about. And, and, and we think it's their, their fault where in many cases we could, if we were, this sounds non-scientific, but we, if we were a little more sensitive to what it is the other person needs at that moment or in that time and find a way to convey our information with respect to that person's needs, that person on their own will become interested, more interested in listening to what we're saying, and then the educational moments can really happen. Hmm. Do, do you sense, um, is, I guess, is that the job of the politician? I mean, I guess it's everybody's job in trying to educate. Well, um, you know, it, politicians, if you're running for president, usually have a team of people helping you with that, right? They, right. Call, it, they call it messaging, and at its best, uh, what those teams are doing is they're going in and they're listening to voters. They're going in and listening to citizens and hearing the stories of their lives and their struggles with jobs and family and things like that, bringing it back to the candidate, bringing it back to the team, and then trying to figure out, okay, here's a way at this moment uh, that I can help you. And, and I think the best candidates are the ones who can tell a strong story about their policy stances, but seamlessly integrate that into the real lives of people. Um, you know, at, when you're running for state legislature, you have to do that on your own. Right. Or you get a couple of interns to help you. But um, you know, so much of what being a, an effective politician is about, sometimes we, we, you know, we don't, it's easy to make fun of politicians, but the ones that are really doing a great job trying to help people with quality of life, listening is such a great skill for them. They can walk into a room, they spend a little time trying to figure out why people are there, and then they can tell an honest story about themselves but integrate it into the lives of the audience. Hmm. And when you can do that, you actually have an audience. That's right. And yeah, and you'll aggregate the audience. I guess, I mean, you can see that like on Twitter, people that can, they just can talk about the needs of certain people. They start, those people start accumulating this audience and the audience will follow you. And I guess, so that would work, you know, in in old school media, in print, in social media, it can work everywhere. Yeah. If you can convey, you understand what's going on with people. Yeah, one of the things that I, when I give people advice on this, I, I tell them a story, which is sometimes we're told that to tell our story, to, for me to go in front of an audience and tell our story. And what we know from looking at brains is that other people aren't inherently interested in my story. What they want to hear me tell is their story. I can be in it, but if I'm in it, what they need to be able to do is see me as some kind of version of them or me as a version of somebody they care about. So like when we go see Star Wars and we see Luke Skywalker, Part of the reason that people are attracted to Skywalker is they see an aspirational version of themselves in Luke Skywalker or a son or a relative, and so you care about what happens to them. Similarly, in education, if I'm going to tell a story about me, it's only going to be relevant to you if you could see yourself in that position, and if my story of redemption or hard work or whatever it is, you say, you know, that would work for me too. Now my audience is going to be interested in that story. But if I just tell a story about myself that an audience can't relate to, uh, they're going to nod to be polite, yeah. and they're going to forget it. And, and and that that comes out with candidates too that just don't seem they're telling a story, and it even might yeah. be a story about somebody and their real need, but it doesn't seem to con. It's not conveyed. It's not transferred to my heart, and I feel yeah. like they're full of it. No, there was a movie about ten years ago that came out. And it was called uh, "She's Just Not That Into You." Yeah, I love and what that. I try to yeah, I try to tell people that's life. 
right? That is the standard. Uh, that should be your standard operating assumption that when you're talking to other people. That's your baseline. And so now what you have to do is try and build a moment where you can touch people's lives, sort of react to, to their situation and say, okay, I understand that. And now I'm going to give you something of value to your life. And if you open that up, people can hear a lot of things. And that's when learning really occurs. Mm. Do you sense, I mean, like I kind of see a mix going on between maybe a more uh, liberal and a more conservative approach where conservatives seem to have cornered talk radio. And, um, you know, they've got big audiences and uh, liberals seem to have, you know, kind of cornered maybe television, kind of the John Oliver type of media, too. Yeah. Um, are these are these helpful in informing or are they only informing in a one sided or a? I mean, how do you see these other forms of information? Well, what's certainly true is that you don't see a lot of, let's say, liberals watching Fox News with an open mind. Uh, So, you know, you look at Bill O'Reilly and they start counter-arguing. So this is a very common phenomenon. Um, My background's in mathematics, and early in my career, what I wanted to believe was that people processed information efficiently. But as I did my own research and looked at the research of others, the thing that is absolutely clear is that we typically have a feeling about information first, and maybe later we'll think about it. And so that feeling is typically, does this information threaten us, in which case we want to find some way to get away from it really quickly, or does it you know, boost our self-esteem and tell us that we're right and we're awesome, in which case we want more of it and we want to elevate it. And so most information search works that way. There's a huge emotional component to, do I accept this or do I reject it? Which is why if you and I were going to try and like, educate people about a certain policy, what we need to do first is understand people's values and then try and tell the story of what we know in, in ways that are consistent with the values that people have. Because if we walk into a room and, and the first thing we say is, you guys have bad values and now we're going to tell you, you know, how the world works, right. again, people will, if they haven't gotten up and left, the best they'll do is they'll nod at us, they'll be polite, and then they'll leave and never think about it again. Mm. So we've got to tap, we've got to go to people where they are if we want them to listen to what we're saying. Yeah. Um, we have about a minute left, Dr. Lupia. Talk to me um, just about our children and, you know, the training and education of political science and civics in our schools. What, what can we do as parents? What can we do as people to strengthen their, their love of maybe country, but their civic duty and, you know, their, their need to be a participant? Yeah, well, I, you pointed out the first step before the break. You know, even kids don't want to hear that they should eat their spinach, right? And so telling stories about our communities and about our nation and about our government, helping them realize that the aspirations that they have, the lives that they lead, the privileges or or opportunities that they have, the struggles that they have come from this common experience that we've had. And that, you know, things like government don't just happen to us. They are things that we're a part of. And so, you know, constructing narratives and, and providing situations where even young people can be involved in decision-making and they can see how their participation makes a difference and even improves just the lives of their classmates, those can be really powerful examples for children about how participating in the political process can improve the lives of people around yeah. them. So I think a civic education that is more experience-oriented can be a powerful thing for children. I love it. And my kids are asking. Every one of my children, I've had a discussion with every one of them this week about Donald Trump, about Hillary Clinton. I mean, they're asking. They want to know. They're talking about it. So like you're saying, create the narrative and share the stories. Yeah, sounds like you've done a great job with them. Well, and maybe they're just, you know, maybe they're just in the rough part of town 
hearing the bad stuff. <laughs> Who knows? Dr. Arthur Lupia, thank you so much. And again, um, go to his website. Um, wonderful resource there is where well, ArthurLupia.com. And um, you can go find his book, Uninformed, Why People Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. Wonderful resource, folks. We've got to educate, get them informed. And, you know, I have more influence with my children than maybe, you know, my neighbors. So I'll start with my children and work my circle of influence out. Great, uh, great resource there from uh, University of Michigan. Cool stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come right back and wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's um, it's always fun to to just learn more about what's going on. Motivation 101, right? I got to get you involved. If you want to have an informed electorate, you got to get people involved. I also think you've got to take some of the divisiveness out of it. I mean, I get that we have two-party system and the two parties are going to battle. But I think a lot of the contention will keep a certain percentage of people out anyway. I also think, um, I mean, I guess the assumption is it will also bring people in because they're really going to want to, to now, for example, somebody's going to want to really get Hillary Clinton or somebody's going to want to get rid of Donald Trump now. But to be the anti-vote doesn't mean you you're in a good place, right? I mean, so we vote out one of them. It doesn't mean you've got the best candidate. So this divisive, uh, you know, fighting and wrangling between different sides and factions of the parties, it's not demanding any consensus building. It's just whoever's got the most money and the most power can crush and squash the other voices. Which is probably the reason people are so mad in the GOP, right? Because they had a McCain, ugh, too liberal. They had a, um, a Romney, ugh, not, not conservative enough. And so now it's kind of like everyone's mad, whatever. Who cares who we get? Let's just get somebody that'll just destroy things. Now, they may also be thinking, he speaks the truth, right? He's, he speaks his mind, and he totally does. But it's the divisiveness that has probably created what you're seeing in the GOP and what you're seeing even in the uh, liberal side. Progressives pulling Hillary too far to the left. She'll never be able to come back in a general. Oh, unless she faces Donald Trump. Is this the way we do it? And if you're not out there being a participant, you don't have to go be in the rallies against these people. But you can turn out. You can read. You can listen You can learn so that when you hear something that one of them says, you think, no, not true. Yeah, that's not true. You can also be there to to make sure that they're not, you know, realigning districts in a way that makes these kind of chaotic problems as well. Maintaining some, I don't know, 
some opportunities to learn from other people. Anyway, collaboration, I believe, is going to be the principle that creates a long-term sustainable nation. We have to learn to collaborate. We have to learn to cooperate. Competition is a wonderful principle, but it will always divide. At some point, you have to cooperate. And that, I think, is what we also haven't informed people about, is how you actually go about cooperating. That's why we do the show, give you more tools to connect, to cooperate, and to lead a healthier life. We'll take a break. We'll be back. You know, we're not going far. Are you kidding me? We're going to come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits. Bill Marler put together this article. And he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, Check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Mm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got got to – anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them. Do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads to so the hospital. So good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. 
Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up, 160 degrees to kill the bacteria, or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, it's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's – It sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has – did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart. She just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something... You can't always do when you find something strange in your meal, you know? Hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make, make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Man, interesting subject, isn't it? When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, 
It's and we don't consciously sit there and say, "I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody." But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, "Oh, Matt, shouldn't say that." And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, "Man, what's wrong with me? Why?" Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event – it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right, because you're doing something that is – Right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your 10 friends, if you had 10 friends, Ben, nine out of 10 of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too. And I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know, credibility, it, just because it is logical and it, it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system, don't all, they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion, um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are. Or you could just shut your flapper and go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. <laughs> Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad? So I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden – it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do was just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, 12 or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. 
but he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what, does, what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, – where th- people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Hoping to help you see the good in the world, stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show, do you believe in life after death? Think about it. Many do, right? And uh, different religions paint different pictures of what it may look like, from heavenly angels to simply an abode of peace. Other religions don't believe in a heaven that exists as a physical space. But uh, what would it look like to you? Our guest today, Dr. Evan Alexander III, a renowned academic neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience and came back with a whole new perspective. He joins us now live from Virginia to talk about his experience. Dr. Evan Alexander, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've been honored to have you. What an interesting topic because as a neuroscience and or a neurosurgeon and um, and a professional, you you had your own view of of uh, heaven and life after death, and you didn't believe it before well, you had your own experience. The, uh, conventional party line, you know. The I went to med school, uh, finished 1980, and then all through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, my uh, career uh, at Harvard Medical School teaching neurosurgery. I thought I had some idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness worked, but it was definitely uh, trapped in in kind of the old paradigm of the. Uh, 20th and early 21st century of, you know, the physical being all that exists and consciousness being some epiphenomenon of the workings of the physical brain. And my coma journey showed me very clearly that that was completely backwards. And the good news is that much of the scientific community is waking up to this now all over the question of consciousness, and it's going to revolutionize our worldview. Wow. And t- talk to us. Talk to us about what what led you, what what happened to you that made you um, 
that made you change your tune? Well, I think uh, the real gift in all this was my diagnosis. Uh, no other means of going into coma could have allowed me to come away with the conclusions that I could. And the reason is that a severe case of gram-negative bacterial meningitis like I had, that's the very worst kind of bacterial meningitis you can have. Mm. Um, and my doctors knew full well that my neocortex, the human part of the brain, the outer surface, was devastated, even when I was first brought into the emergency room on day one. And I spent seven days in coma, uh, and doctors who deal with such illness will realize you never have a patient who spends uh, seven days in coma from that and then has a full recovery, especially given the details of how, uh, how ill I was from this meningitis. Um, and a deep mystery, along with you don't ever come back from that kind of thing, is uh, you should have no experience within it because our, our modern neuroscientific views of the neocortex and its role in the brain of creating consciousness mean that uh, you know, my kind of coma with such a complete destruction of the neocortex should not allow any kind of hallucination, dream effect, uh, huh. dream state, drug effect, anything like that. And yet I had a very rich experience that was far beyond what my brain could muster even now. Uh, and this is all pointing out that consciousness is not created by the brain at all, that there's much more to the universe than just the physical. Wow. And it's a revolution in the awakening of, of our scientific community to the realities of non-local consciousness and that consciousness is fundamental in the universe. Powerful. And the mere fact, too, that you remember. I mean, it's, I mean, it seems like just coming out of such a thing would be you wouldn't be able to remember it either. But apparently you remember it. You experienced it. You weren't supposed to based on our, our traditional history of, of understanding. And, and now you can blow up some paradigms. Well, you know, for a long time, uh, memory has been a deep, deep question in the neuroscientific world. And even though I came along with the rest of uh, conventional neuroscience thinking that somehow memories must be stored in the physical brain because I thought the physical brain created consciousness. But now I realize that memories are not stored in the brain in that sense at all. And in fact, one of the, the greatest neurosurgeons of the 20th century who absolutely has the best evidence uh, to talk about memory and the brain and, and all of that is Wilder Penfield. He wrote a beautiful book uh, in, the, in 1975 called The Mystery of the Mind. He was a, a renowned Canadian neurosurgeon, worked in Montreal mainly with epileptic patients, and he had electrically stimulated the brain in these patients doing operations to resect uh, the cause of their seizures, the parts of the brain that were the problem, for decades. And he wrote this book in 1975 and made it very clear that mind and consciousness are not created by the brain. He made it very clear that free will is not something that can be found in the brain at all. And uh, yet his book, The Mystery of the Mind, which is a deep scientific study of the fundamental nature of consciousness, uh, basically fell on deaf ears. You know, mm. the world was not ready in 1975 to hear that. But the world is ready now. And this is the awakening that is coming to the scientific community and the world at large that will revolutionize our thinking and serve to synthesize science and spirituality in a much more profound sense. Was it, were you worried um, to come out of the closet, so to speak, and, and talk about your findings, talk about what you learned? Or did you feel this imperative 
in your heart because of the spiritual nature of what you'd been through? Well, it's important to point out that um, my illness was devastating. When I first woke up in the ICU on day seven of my coma, a few hours after my doctors had recommended just stopping the antibiotics because they estimated I was down to 2% chance of survival with no chance of recovery, when I did start waking up, my brain was absolutely wrecked. I did not recognize my mother, my sisters, my uh, son standing at the bedside. I had no idea who these beings were. All of my memories of Evan Alexander's life before coma, including all language, religious concepts, hmm. uh, every bit of that had been deleted in the middle of the experience, uh, which allowed for a very profound and robust experience, which, of course, is what I describe in the book Proof of Heaven and the sequel, The Map of Heaven. Yeah. But uh, when I first came back, it was so shocking to me and so ultra-real, as I told my older son, who was majoring in neuroscience at the time, I said it was way too real to be real, <laughs> which was the best way I could express it. And, and my doctors kept telling me that my brain was far too damaged to have experienced anything. So my default uh, explanation early on was it had to be some massive hallucination that completely defied any kind of uh, conventional neuroscientific thinking, but I still thought it had to be based on my brain. I was defaulting to my pre-coma thinking, but as time went on, as I went and spoke with my doctors, reviewed my case, went through all the medical records, all the scans, and talked it over with them and with interested neurosurgical colleagues, what we ended up discovering was it seemed way too real to be real because it absolutely was. <laughs> we ruled out that it could have been any kind of hallucination or trick of the dying brain because my brain was too incapacitated in the form of destruction of the neocortex, which was global in my case, uh, to have allowed any such experiences to happen. So to this day, my doctors will tell you they have no explanation whatsoever for my recovery. Uh, you know, I was 2% chance of survival, so that's not unheard of, 2%, but they thought it was absolutely unheard of that I would have any meaningful recovery and return to consciousness. And yet within three months, everything had come back and was actually more complete than it had been before my coma in terms of memories and, and uh, my general kind of overall mental and conscious state was even enhanced beyond what it had been before my coma. Hmm. That part was extremely difficult to explain, and it's why I'm still on a vertical part of the learning curve trying to understand all of this. Wow. And, and yet you've, you've also been, become, um, I guess, adept at being able to explain what we don't know, what we don't understand, and do it, doing it academically, but also being able to connect it to that, that spiritual peace that, uh, that people need. Talk to us about heaven. What did well, you learn? Uh, you know, we, you don't have to just go by my story. That's the really good news here, is proof of heaven is just one story of millions uh, of modern stories. There are tens of thousands of reports out there on the Internet. And, of course, I get the benefit by talking several times a week about this around the world. I have uh, many people come up to me. I'd say roughly 10 to 15% of my audiences at the end of my talks will come up and say, I never told anybody this before, hmm. but... Yeah. And they will share with me a story that is absolutely world-changing when you realize how common these stories are and the similarities between them. Yeah. And these are often people who may not have ever read anything about near-death experiences. And the other category that is so shocking are what are called shared-death experiences. And I 
started giving talks on my experience about two and a half years before Proof of Heaven came out, back in 2010, and I started having many people come up to me afterwards and share not only a near-death experience they may have had, or a deathbed visitation or deathbed vision, uh, you know, something that was shared with them by a departing soul of a departing loved one, but also the shared death experiences, where in fact um, the soul of a loved one at the bedside, but it can be, they could be 3,000 miles away, but more commonly they're at the bedside of someone who is dying, um, and they, the bystander soul, gets sucked along on the journey. Huh. And the typical way they tell this to me is that they're standing there at the bedside of their, say, for example, their mother dying, uh, and all of a sudden they see the walls and floor and ceiling blend into this geometry of infinity, and these light beings come in, they see the light body soul rise up out of the uh, body of their departing, of the de dying loved one, and then the soul of the bystander also goes along on the journey, even to the point of seeing a full-blown life review, hmm. and then they come back to this world. And like I said, this kind of thing can happen even if you're 3,000 miles away from your dying mother. Uh, her soul can come through and give you this blissful, incredibly concrete message about the reality of your interconnection as souls, and then move on. And so when you start hearing shared death experiences like that in people who are physiologically totally normal, right. so all of those nonsensical, simplistic pseudo-explanations from the world of medicine and science trying to say, well, it's just oxygen tension in the brain as you die, or the buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood, and other kinds of uh, similarly nonsensical uh, tripe, what you realize is that this is a far more profound mystery about the nature of who we are and the commonality of these experiences and the fact that they're there by the millions is what drives this world to come to a deeper explanation. When you realize they are not simplistically dismissed as hallucinations or drug effects, right. but they're far more profound indicators of the nature of our eternal spiritual being and that the only thing that matters is our interrelationships with others, because I often say this is really the evolution of all of humanity, which is occurring through each and every one of us, but is a much bigger story about getting into the depths of uh, our nature for being and purpose in our lives and what this whole existence is all about. And uh, that's what this world needs to wake up to now and is waking up to now, as yeah. is the entire scientific community around the question of consciousness and the relationship of brain and mind. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Recently, too, we just had on Dr. Lisa Miller from Columbia who wrote the book The Spiritual Child and, again, validating the academic research around spirituality and, and a connectedness to a higher being, a higher power, a oneness of the universe, whatever we want to call it. But um, she's able now, through twin studies and other studies, to validate the the great benefits of a connection to that higher power. And it, it is. It seems like it's 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 the time. It's the time that we need to start maybe um, opening up and studying this more. We're speaking with Dr. Eben Alexander um, and his book, Proof of Heaven. Also, uh, his his new book, The Map of Heaven. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion. Learn more about uh, what Dr. Alexander found. Um, on the other side, proof of heaven. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you believe in heaven? Have you heard friends tell their uh, near-death experiences or other experiences where they felt a connection to a soul that had just passed or, um, you know, been on a, been on a journey uh, with those people as well um, post-death? Well, our, our guest that we're speaking with, Dr. Um, Eben Alexander III, is the author of the book Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife After Suffering a Severe, uh, Fatal, Really, but Not, not for Him, um, uh, Diagnosis of a Form of Meningitis. He, um, he, he went there and, and back and, is, and then blew up a lot of myths that uh, he had learned as a neurosurgeon and a renowned neurosurgeon at that. Um, again, Dr. Eben Alexander, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be back. Teach us. What, uh, what else? What do we need to know? Um, what do we need to know from the other side as one that's journeyed and, and felt, um, and felt that, ch- that change and, and also come back? And what do we need to know just as the average citizen? As the average citizen, the best thing to know is that we are each deeply loved and cherished and will be taken care of. We simply have to recover the memory uh, that we are eternal spiritual beings. Now, the thing is, we're not in this in isolation, because through this evolving understanding of consciousness and what it is, what we're coming to see is that we are all interconnected within consciousness. It's almost like this is one mind that is actually doing the learning and teaching and growing and evolving. And we're all parts of that one mind. And even though the way we are uh, presented, you know, as individual uh, incarnations in these physical bodies, and that leads us into this uh, kind of false belief of separation, uh, in deep meditation and in centering prayer and through spontaneous epiphanies, what have you, we can come to see very clearly that we are really part of one mind. We're all in this together. This is why this love of the Creator for the creation, which so many near-death experiencers describe feeling in that realm, that uh, infinite healing power of unconditional love. Uh, And, of course, many of us call that uh, incredible love God, that deity is uh, labeled as God, as the Creator, is the source of all that is. And I would say that that's very much the case, that the very basis of our consciousness is that God, that deity, that fundamental consciousness. And when we realize the physical brain is not creating that at all, but in fact the brain works more like a reducing valve or filter that allows that primordial consciousness in, that that infinite universal primordial consciousness pre-exists all of this universe. It stands outside of space and time as the creator of all that evolves. And that is something we are all part of. And so by going within meditation, centering prayer, what have you, or spontaneous epiphanies from a near-death experience or a deathbed visitation, a shared death experience, what have you, we are getting in touch with that of that God, that deity, that powerful source consciousness across the veil. Uh, and that's why so much of my work now 
as I mentioned in the appendix of the book Map of Heaven, uh, that appendix is entitled The Answers Lie Within Us All, has everything to do with uh, sharing tools for deep conscious exploration. Specifically, um, that involves sacred acoustics. And for people who want to obtain these tools, there's a free download at sacredacoustics.com. And people can listen to differential sound frequencies that sacred acoustics has developed and i've worked very closely with them in that process and these tools oddly enough sound differential frequency sound as was discovered in the mid-1800s by a german physiologist named dove can do an amazing job of helping us to get in touch with that infinite awareness and to slip outside of the false sense of the here now that is projected to us by our brain serving as a filter and reducing consciousness down to this tiny little trickle. Hmm. And that's why it's so important to go within. And in fact, this is all about healing uh, in, the, in the grandest sense, whether you're talking about healing of the individual from an Ill- illness, healing of uh, groups, of soul groups, healing of ethnic and national groups. We're all in the process of healing through this awakening, this synthesis of science and spirituality that's coming to this world brings great healing to the world. But just as individuals, uh, by going within, you can come to see that any kind of physical, mental, emotional healing you want to talk about must originate with spiritual healing. And only when we get that far grander sense of who we are, how we're all interconnected. The important thing here is the love and the interconnectedness and relationships. And the best way to truly love ourselves, I, I saw when I came back from my coma that one of the biggest problems in this world is we don't even love ourselves enough. Right. We think the tough part is loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, but you really must start with loving yourself. And the best way to do that is to remember that we are infinitely powerful, eternally existent spiritual beings that are all interconnected. And in the very core of our conscious awareness is that deity, that God, that sense of love. And by manifesting that love, unconditional love of the creator for the creation, we can basically serve as a conduit for that love and use it in all of our life choices to show love, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, and mercy to all of our fellow beings. And I don't think anyone would question that serving as a point of light and manifesting that kind of love is what enables each and every one of us to move much closer to that love and to Mm -hmm. that infinite awareness of self and of joy and bliss that only comes by realizing that by sharing that with the world, with all fellow beings, is the way that we most fully manifest it for ourselves. Because, in fact, the ego leads us into all kinds of tricks about this false sense of separation. But to recover that love, that love for ourselves, it's best done by loving others. Mm. And that's what enables us to really grow that love and manifest that love for all of the infinite healing power that it harbors and brings to this world. Did you have, Dr. Alexander, a religious creed before you, before you had your, uh, your, your brain, what do we call it, uh, meningitis? Or because it's interesting, you, you even – you make it, it – it's very simple, isn't it? This isn't about a heaven and God choosing 
the ones he likes more than the ones he doesn't, and then sending a bunch down to hell. You're, but no, you're talking, but it's it's pure love, isn't it? It's pure peace. It is, is really. In fact, I came away from my journey very clearly seeing that love and light are they are the presence in the universe. And I saw that uh, darkness and evil, you know, uh, man's inhumanity to man, all the warfare and violence, every bit of that. Um, does not have a, a presence as an active positive force in that world. Uh, those darknesses and evils represent the absence of the light and love. But mm. in fact, uh, that unconditional love in its purest form has infinite power to heal. There is not a force that counters it, a force of evil that might someday overcome it. Uh, and that was a very powerful revelation to to see the the power of unconditional love to heal this world. There's nothing that goes up against it because the darkness and evil is simply the absence of it. Hmm. Yeah, and and that is such a a crucial distinction to make. But this is it is very simple. These are ancient lessons, and yet. They're the only way out for our most advanced fronts of uh, materialist science and cosmology, because as long as you're stuck in that pure materialism, thinking that you know subatomic particles are the only thing that exists in this universe, the more uh, you're really kind of stuck in an untruth, because it's all fundamentally originating from consciousness. And those involved in physics only have to know the depth of the measurement problem and what it tells us. That's what drove the founding fathers of quantum uh, mechanics into mysticism. People like Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrodinger, uh, Louis de Broglie, Sir James Jeans, and others, because it, it showed them the findings in, in quantum mechanical experiments proved that consciousness is fundamental in the universe. And the, and the physics and cosmology community has spent the last 116 years kind of waffling over that, uh, unwilling to make the committing step, but that's why the measurement problem in quantum mechanics mm. is still completely unresolved. But the more they come to realize that consciousness is fundamental, that consciousness is that God force, that force of love that is described empirically by all those who have been to the other side, including the tens of millions of near-death experiencers that have come up over the last 50 years because of cardiac resuscitation techniques introduced in modern medicine. That is no accident that we have this incredible army of near-death experiencers who have come back to this world to help usher the world into a whole new understanding, uh, which realizes that the material and physical side is only a tiny little subset of what really exists in the universe. And in fact, any human being uh, can only know and has only known throughout all of history only the inside of their own consciousness. So to deny the existence of consciousness is really to deny the existence of all reality. The thing is, the mind and brain are so incredibly powerfully clever at the trick of convincing us that what we witness out in the world is all that world out there is actually out there. Because the truth is, no one has ever experienced anything other than an internal model, a representation of what we assume to be the outside world. But that's why the deep mystery of quantum mechanics is so profound, because the more and more you go into the experiments of quantum mechanics into recent years, the more refined experiments, the more you realize that that old uh, dream of the clockwork universe ticking away that 400 years of the scientific revolution has been searching for, uh, 
the quantum mechanical experiments of the most recent variety show us that there is no such objective external physical reality, hmm. that all of it depends on mind and consciousness for serving as kind of the interpreter or the stage on which all of that is assembled. But there is nothing but consciousness. It's the only thing we've ever experienced. And yet our modern science, conventional science, tries to dismiss that and say, no, no, no. Uh, in fact, it's just the workings of the subatomic particles, atoms, molecules in the brain, giving you the illusion of consciousness, illusion of free will. And in fact, that is the viewpoint that has it completely backwards. Huh. My coma journey showed me very clearly. Yeah. Um, we only have about a minute or so left. Talk to us about, um, uh, I mean, th this change. We, it seems like we are only a paradigm shift away from getting to that peace, that unconditional love that you're talking about. We only need to see it just a little bit differently and and it can immediately change us. What is something we can do today to create that shift of toward love and light today? Well, to go within, uh, you know, silence that little voice. Remember, the voice in your head is not your consciousness. It's a it's a parlor trick. The linguistic brain, as it's tied to ego uh, and and false sense of self. So going within is absolutely essential, going into consciousness. This, again, is why I suggest the tools of sacred acoustics. If people will go download that or any form of meditation or deep-centering prayer that you may have in place. But for those who say, well, my mind is too busy to meditate, I can't do it, well, go to sacred acoustics and you will definitely find a way to absolutely go within hmm. and come to realize that that is the means by which we go out into the universe and come into much greater wisdoms, just as all the seers and seekers and prophets and mystics have done over thousands of years. Going within is absolutely the key to coming to know all the information of this universe. Make it a regular practice, and everything in your life will improve. Oh, beautiful. I, you can, I mean, you can just, how could it not? Going to more love, going to more centeredness and this and, a, and an unconditional love toward others how could you beat it dr eben alexander we appreciate you so much thank you for your journey with us and uh and keep teaching well matt thank you so much for having me and uh god bless you and, you and all of your listeners and all here thank, thank you thank you again dr eben alexander if you go to his website eben alexander.com eben alexander.com um proof of heaven and um map of heaven two wonderful uh, resources for you to to go in go inside and you know you f whatever you're thinking you feel you feel something different when you talk about that this is about love and unconditional love and um, welcome back friends. there is a difference between Townsend what you're show. thinking you are so and what you feel you in your most peaceful there at, at and you peace think, moments oh, uh, holding your baby being Such by somebody that's passing. What part of there's you a whole is, different is mindset? Your consciousness. There's a whole different level. Right? For is you that there. your brain? And uh, we all need to be seeking. Is that your mind? One way or another. If you really truly is that want your to consciousness. We'll take a break, folks. This is the magic. Which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up. I call it we'll spirit. What or is it your spirit? What what which? What do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of. Who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world, I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy, sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat.
That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up, to me that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty – and you don't even have a job and blinkity blink. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are – you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job – you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say just look to God. If your God came in and truly if if you believe in a God and and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow. Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. A whole new hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They were misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues. And you need to fix this for me. Um but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own 
issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them, and I I want them I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question, and they're like, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that." Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it, I can surmise, but. You're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if, if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person uh, – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was his same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask you a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him – by just asking the question, what are your goals, it allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what what do you perceive the problems might be, 
with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because, and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So – First step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – They might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just – I want I, – I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard. But then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like, you know, retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're is that what you're feeling? This that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on 
and you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a, kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise uh, a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever gone to the grocery store and then you see the price of the vegetables and you're thinking, what? You want me to eat better, but you don't want to make it affordable? So is the idea that eating healthy is really more expensive, is that a real Is that a real concept? Or is that something we just make up so we could eat you know, junk food? Eating healthy is an essential part of an effort to become healthier, right, or to lose weight. And according to a study by the Produce for Better Health Foundation, after a brief rise through 2009, per capita fruit and vegetable consumption has declined 7% over the last five years. This has been driven primarily by decreased consumption of vegetables by 7% and fruit juice by 14%. So... You know, it also uh, may be because prices for healthy foods are on the rise. According to a study by the Overseas Development Institute, prices for healthier foods have been rising. Our guest today is Margaret Marshall, wellness consultant, and she joins us today to talk about her article that we read in the Huffington Post, Is Eating Healthy Really More Expensive? She joins us now live from New York to help us answer that question. Margaret Marshall, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Good morning. Thrilled to be with you today, Matt. You too. Great to have you. I mean, this we all complain, you know, about uh, like vegetables being too expensive and we're not eating them enough. But is that true? Is healthier food really more expensive? You know, you had just read the uh, study that you saw, and that is mind-boggling, really. I don't, know, I, I, I don't know if you said that was from 2009 or since 2009. Yeah, I think so since my, 2009. Five, so my, yeah. Go ahead. No, I just, since, since about probably uh, uh, through 2009, and then at, from 2009 on are when those numbers came out. It's dropping. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Um, that's pretty sad. No, totally. That's pretty sad. So if people are not buying fresh produce, where are they spending their money? You know, that's, I think, what every shopper and family has to ask themselves. What's in my shopping cart? Where's my money going? And is it being well spent on the health of myself and my family? And, you know, it's, it's funny. I had written this article for Huffington Post right after I had done a seminar. And once again, I heard someone from a seminar or you know, say, have you seen the price of lettuce lately? Or have you, you know, the price of bananas is so high. And I always say, when people say that to me, what's the, what's the price tag on your favorite box of cookies? And right. they never have an answer. <laughs> never look. Yeah. They never look. And, and I find that, and in that moment, that's a reality check for them because they'll complain about the price of of uh, fresh produce because if it's not seasonal, what they're buying is not seasonal, but they'll continue to buy boxes of food that has no nutritional value in it whatsoever. The price on that continues to rise, and not only is the price rising on those foods, the quantity in the boxes are getting smaller and smaller. So, you know, they're just not thinking things through clearly. That's what your article does, is it answers... I mean, what's the cost, sure, of of everything else you're doing? And, I mean, it all adds up one way or another. You're going to spend money either in the doctor's office or at Weight Watchers or, you know, in the produce section. Right. (laughs) Where are you going to spend it? Right. Correct. And and what's really better for you? You know, if if you feed your body with food that is going to give it the nutrients it needs and the vitamins it needs and give you the energy you need and the stamina to live a healthy lifestyle, well, then you're not going to be spending money at as much money in the doctor's office and at pharmacies and in weight loss programs, which is a $60 billion industry. Wow. So explain that. Right. You know, explain why the weight loss field is a $60 billion industry and people are worried about their lettuce being a dollar higher than it was last week. Is... It seems like it's an excuse, right? And I mean, like I know with me, if the vegetables are there and they're in front of me, and I'll eat them. It's but my idea is, then I hear about McDonald's trying to do some garlic fries, and I think, well, I got to drive out of my way to get those. Is it's, that right? It's it's this idea though uh, that I guess we're lazy. Is it lazy? If you're driving out of your way no. to get something, is it lazy? No, yeah, no, it's, or is it habit? I'm mo- or motivated, right? I'm more motivated to oh, go okay. try something than I am to to actually go. But I, I'll sit there and watch on Facebook. Somebody, I don't even know how it's in my feed, but I'll watch people cutting up vegetables and making vegetables look so beautiful in this meal. And I'm like, yeah, I should do that. And then I just and, flip and go to the next one. <laughs> and And what stops you? It, well, I guess what stops me in the end is I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, 
I don't know. Even just going, my wife will say, can you go pick out some tomatoes? And I get to the produce section and I'm like, I don't know how to judge a tomato. It's, I feel awkward. So, really? Yeah. I if that's true for many people, I, I, you know, that very well could be. And again, it's all what you're accustomed to. Hmm. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I, I don't know about the, the um, garlic fries. I don't even know about them. I don't. I'll, I'll let you know when I try them. They're not on my radar screen. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, but when many people who eat sugary items, processed sugary items like cake and candy and ice cream, they find that fruit really has no taste because it's not as sweet as what they're accustomed to having. But once you realize that you cut out all that processed food, fruit has a fantastic taste. It's sweet enough, and the taste like will burst in your mouth. The flavor will burst in your mouth. But that's not going to happen if you're eating all that artificial sweetener or processed sugars. So the patterns are, are a big part of this. We have to look at our, our eating patterns because if I am overloading myself with sugar, I mean, and I mean, if I'm drinking sugar all day, just oh all of a sudden, yeah. How could a how could a cherry taste distinct and special if you've been drinking cherry coke all day? Right, right, right. How do you compare it? It all goes back to your patterns and your habits. You know, I'm just thinking also what you just said about going and picking out tomatoes and not knowing um, how to do that. I just had company about a week or so ago, and I entertain often, but I was making this recipe with avocados, and truthfully, I never bought an avocado in my life, hmm. even though I know how good they are for you. Yeah. It was just never in my pattern. So I went to buy this avocado, and I cut it up, and it was so easy <laughs> to do, and tasted so delicious. But I said, why haven't I been doing this all along? Yeah. So now avocados is part of my weekly grocery shopping list. And well, so, I, Don't you think, Margaret, a lot of people, um, and we do it, where you get in this idea, this, this, this moment in your head where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. And we're going to buy vegetables. And you buy the vegetables and you don't. And we end up just seeing them disintegrating in our fridge. Um, it's we. It's almost like we're motivated to do it, and then either maybe we don't know what we're doing, but it's as easy as that. You just have to almost force yourself to go get an avocado and ask the produce guy or gal how how you pick up how you pick one, and then I mean, by the way, Google it. You can Google every one of these things, and and just try stuff. It just like you're saying, change the pattern. Change the pattern. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have I have a story like that in my book, and. I know you saw my Huffington Post on this, but I have almost 60 Huffington Posts out there, so I hope you read them all. By the way, and what, what's the best – do you have a website where we can go – I do have a website. It's margaretmarshallassociates.com. Right. And Marshall has two L's. It's, it's time for me to update my website, but all of my Huffington Posts are on there. Um, but my, my thinking was I have, I have one Huffington Post. I cannot off the top of my head remember what I titled it, but the story is also in my book or this – theme is also in my book, Body, Mind, and Mouth, that people buy fresh produce when they go grocery shopping with the best of intentions. Mm. But they also buy the cake and the cookies and the candies at the same time. So when they bring everything home at the end of the week, what have they eaten and what's getting thrown out? Yeah, all the cake's gone. Mm, the cookies cake, are the gone. gone. The sugar cereal's gone. The, the, you know drinks, sugary drinks, gone. Because once you start eating sugar, that's all you want. You want more and more sugar. 
you know? That's true. So for people who are throwing out their produce, and I have a whole Huffington Post on this, I guess, but of course I can't remember the title of it. People who are throwing out their fresh produce at the end of the week, they're either buying too much, with good intentions, no sure. doubt, or they're eating food that is not nourishing them, and they're just eating too much of that, and they never get to the fresh produce because they have that, that taste in their mouth of, of sugar or fat, and they, you want to keep going for that once you start eating that. Well, and let's let and we'll we'll get to that because talk about cost, talk about expensive. If you're eating a bunch of food that doesn't actually nourish you and doesn't make you feel better and um, that's that's not healthy, then you're going to end up having to buy a lot more of it. So we're, we we'll come back, Margaret, and I want your your tips and some of your your ideas and and ways to you know, eat healthy and still, you know, make it affordable for a family, for for just any of us. Where again, we're speaking with Margaret Marshall. If you go to her website, margaretmarshallassociates.com, a wonderful resource there to um, to go through all of her articles from Huffington Post and her media and her, and her blog, all of her information she's got, plus to, to get a better look at her book as well. Um, we are going to continue this discussion on the other side of the break. Stick with us when we come back. How to uh, eat a healthy diet affordably. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you are going to use the the cost of produce is too expensive as the excuse for why you're not eating produce, then, man, have we got a guest for you. Uh, Margaret uh, Marshall joins us, and uh, she is a, uh, a writer, an author, and has been actually um, – she's written many, many articles for Huffington Post, and she, she wrote one about eating healthy. Is it really more expensive? And that's what caught our attention because we hear the excuse, I use the excuse. I I don't use that excuse for why I I don't eat vegetables. I I don't eat vegetables because I'm lazy and because um, uh, all of the other wonderful cakes and cookies that I eat are way better to my palate. The problem is, it's not about the money because you're spending money in a variety of different ways. It's about your patterns and it's about um, it's about some other choices. That uh, Margaret is going to be teaching us now. Margaret Marshall, welcome back to the show. Hi, Matt. Good to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. And uh, your book, Body, Mind, and Mouth: Life's Eating Connection. Um, that I guess they could find that anywhere, huh? They can find that anywhere. Uh, they can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's on the shelves. It's in libraries. I also have a new book coming out in June. Mm, what's it called? Yeah, the title of that is Healthy Living Means Living Healthy. And it's all about how you are in control of your healthy living. Yeah, so it's a it, that that is a uh, that's like empowering, right? I'm in charge of my own decisions. I'm in charge of how much I eat, and I'm in charge of what I buy and if I consume it. Right, and if that's not working for you, this book will help you change it in, in, in a multitude of ways. Whether it's a holiday or family or stress, you know. It, it's all categorized with different ideas for you for different challenges that you come up with throughout the year. Great. Talk to us about uh, some tips. What are some things that we could do to find cost-efficient, healthy foods? Well, the first 
thing, and this is what I always tell my clients to do, and, and I ask them to practice it yearly, is to shop for what's seasonal. First of all, if you're going to buy fresh produce that's seasonable in your area, it, it's going to be more cost-effective for you. It's not going to be as costly, and you go, it's going to have more nutrients in it because the longer a fresh item has to travel to your grocer's shelf, the less nutrients it will have in it. So, like, I live in New York. You know, I, I wouldn't buy watermelon in, in the winter, although the grocery stores have it. It's not as tasty, and uh, it costs it's very expensive. But there are other fruits that I would buy in the winter, and the same is true with the summer. You know, I'd buy fruits in the summer. I'd certainly buy watermelon in the summer. But um, depending on where you live, look for what's local. And, again, you mentioned Google. I always have my clients Google what is local in their area and then go for that food, uh, fresh produce for that. They have a lot of farmer's markets. There's just local things. I mean, I'm assuming that's a great thing. Just get to your farmer's market. Farmer's markets will always be, first of all, the the best tasting fruit that you can get. And here on Long Island, we certainly have farms out on the east end of Long Island with farm stands all over the place. And that is the best, in my opinion, the best uh, produce we can get. I can't always get there, so I do have to rely on on grocery stores, um, but if you have that in in where you're living, ideal. That's just ideal. It seems like you have to almost broaden your palate a little bit because if all all your kids will eat are strawberries, then yeah, you're going to pay a lot of money. Well, you know, it's really funny, Matt, because you keep bringing these items up. I have another. Another Huffington Post uh, that I wrote a long time ago is How to Satisfy Your Picky Eater. And one of the things I wrote in there is, you know, your kids are picky mainly because of what you're doing. Hmm. So always notice what you're doing and how you're eating because that is going to dictate what your kids are going to eat or not to eat. Yeah. Um, so if they're only eating strawberries, you know, think about what are you really bringing into the house and what are they trying that's so true. And, I mean, the, the distance between a strawberry and a kiwi, very small. <laughs> and um, yeah. we just introduced kiwis to uh, our kids, and they are like, what? Nirvana. They, they like, loved it. Oh, wow. Look at that. Now, one of them had, you know, all the prickly hair on the outside of it all over his right. lips. But oh, we, we had to teach him that. But, um, How old are your children? Uh, I have uh, from 10 up to 22. Okay, so they're a little older, and so that, that's a great time to start building those taste buds, especially before they go off to college and right. start eating all the, uh, the food in the cafeteria on the college campus. If they're used to eat, eating nutritious food, they're going to be looking for that. Yeah, and, 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 they, and they, already, they already do. In fact, when, like when we go somewhere where there's a salad bar, you can see that they'll, they'll pick and take their favorite items. Um, it, what are some other tricks that you use to make sure that uh, you're, you're able to eat the veggies and the fruits and, and do it affordably? Well, you know what? It's, it's funny because people will say to me, you know, I, I, always, I have my five-finger food guide, and I, I lump lump fruits and vegetables into one food group, as many people do. And, and so when I do seminars or I work with clients, they always say it should be more vegetables, right, than fruit. Well, sure, in a perfect world, you should be eating more vegetables than fruit. But very often when I start working with people, they're not eating any of it. Right. They're not eating any vegetables. They're not eating any fruit. So if I can get them to eat the fruit first and then we can work on the vegetables, that's fine too. 
you know, it's just getting them into that produce aisle and getting them to look at different things, just as your family did with, with the kiwi. Walk down the produce aisle. Talk to the people who are working in the produce aisle. Ask them what just came in or, you know, what is this? I remember one time looking for spaghetti squash years mm. ago, the first yeah. time I was going to eat it. And I said to the produce manager, I said, what does it look like? <laughs> I didn't know. And um, you only have to ask once. After yeah. that, you know. And you you really only need two or three recipes of for you know for banana squash to make it a major part of your life really right right like I didn't know you could use it as pasta and all of a sudden spaghetti squash could be pasta wow spaghetti squash could be pasta or if you don't want it to be all your pasta mix it with pasta that's so that great you're not eating all of the pasta you know or um. You know, there's so many things you can do if you just take a step back. And first, ask other people, Google it, read about it. But take a step back and say, what is working for me? Because in, in my article here, and I truly, truly believe this, and I'm going to read it just as I wrote it, your eating affects everything from your health to your level of success. What you eat, what you choose to eat can dictate moods, relationships, and lifestyle. Hmm. And that is so true. And it may not, you may not see it in the day, but you will see it as the months and the years go on. You know, if, if, if you're in a profession um, and you're moving forward in your profession and as the years go on and you're not eating well and you're not looking healthy and you're putting weight on and you're getting slower and your brain is not as sharp as it once was because you're feeding it a lot of sugar, when the promotions roll around, you're not going to be a candidate. So true. It's you know, so true. And they're not going to tell you that. Right. But you're not going to be a candidate. So that's going to hit you in the pocket as well. No, yeah. I mean, that's the point you make in the article is you're going to be hit in the pocket a variety of ways. It's not just at the store, but it's it might be in your job and your lack of promotion. But if you eat healthier foods and they're more nourishing for you, you'll eat less. You'll absolutely eat less because your body doesn't need as much. When you're eating foods that is giving, you know, your body will crave what it needs. But if you're giving it all the wrong food, that's the message you're getting from it now. And it wants to keep having it so because it's still looking for the nutrients it needs. And it's not getting it. So you want to keep eating and keep eating. So the food that you're buying that's not nourishing, you're eating more of. But when you nourish your food, with your, your body with good protein and good produce and, and healthy fats, you don't need to eat as much. And I, I, get, I was just going to say, um, I, I guess in the end, too, if you're being nourished and you're healthier, um, you'll have the energy to go exercise, the energy to, to be more active, less lethargic, maybe a little more color back in your face. Also, in the end, though, you'll be healthier. And if you're healthier, then other costs will go down. Uh, insurance costs um, and other things. I mean, certain issues that we all deal with with health, heart issues, anxiety issues. I mean, a lot of these could just be based on our lifestyle and our sedentary lifestyle. Absolutely. So true. And, um, you know, I'm looking at my 60th birthday in July, and I am so, I know anything can happen tomorrow. I understand that. But I am so um, blessed, and, and of course I've worked at this, that I am facing 60 years old with no medications, mm. no ill health. But another one of my Huffington Posts you can read is, um, what did I title it? Eat for your heart's health. Mm. Eat for your heart's health. 
heart's desire or something like that. What's the saying? Eat, for, eat to your heart's desire? To your heart's desire, yeah. I changed that for, to eat for heart health, and, it, and I'm honest enough in there to talk about my husband's heart disease. And so you can't control anybody else. Yeah. You can only control yourself. You can be a, an example, but you can only control yourself. Yeah. You know? Um, so maybe somebody wants to go and read about that and see where that led. But, um, but you can also, I mean, in a family, we can also deeply influence each other. And it might just can. mean we need to dig a little deeper to make vegetables a little more interesting, find a different way to present them. I mean, I'm pretty sure if we put... Um, if we put uh, spaghetti squash inside of spaghetti and served it as pasta to our kids, most of them wouldn't notice it. And then those that did uh, would be fine with it. And all of a sudden, you're getting these servings in them, and, and they're enjoying it. Right. One thing I noticed, too, my kids are in their 30s, but one thing I noticed, too, is don't try and trick them yeah. either. You know, spaghetti squash is orange, so it doesn't look like pasta so much but you say i made this this is different let's try this you know you'll love it right yeah and and, you know i know you don't pass off mashed cauliflowers mashed potatoes you tried a new recipe with cauliflower and and then they expect that taste yeah you know yeah it's it's learning isn't it well margaret we appreciate your time and your insight on this again everybody go check out her website margaretmarshallassociates.com wonderful resources there as well as all of those huffington post uh, articles that you can read through and margaret we appreciate you thank you it really is when you think about it folks it's your life right and uh we we got to do something we we you know we can keep talking about your health and there's a point where, where we really, we just, we need to just get healthy. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you live longer. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, in a new study in the journal uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings, a group of researchers set out to answer the, this very question. They looked at the data from a nationally representative sample of 5,000 people to see how many hit four healthy targets. Okay? Four healthy targets. The four targets were these. Exercise. They, they, they gave everybody an activity tracker and had them um, ex- uh show that they're exercising at either a moderate or a higher intensity for at least 150 minutes per week, number one. Number two, diet. Do you adhere to the federal government's definition of a good diet, which emphasizes uh, ample produce and limited saturated fats, sodium, and added sugar? Three, body composition. Would a body composition scanner show that you have body fat percentage between 5 and 20% if you're a male and 8 and 30% if you're a female? And the fourth criteria, smoking status. Could you pass a blood test proving that you don't smoke? Four things, exercising, 150 minutes, diet, according to the, uh, the federal government's definition of a good diet, body composition, 5 to 20% for male, 8 to 30% for female, and smoking status. Could you pass that test? Now, be honest. Guess what the numbers were? Only 2.7% of the 5,000 people they were studying could hit all four benchmarks. Less than 3% of the population could hit all four. Men score worse than women 
They are less likely to eat well. Only 32% of men eat well compared to 44% of women. And uh, men score worse on abstaining from smoking. 63% of men abstain from smoking compared to 80% of women. The scientists also tested the subjects for uh, blood for markers that would indicate their risk for cardiovascular disease. And um, men are the more of the targets a person hits, the lower they are at risk. But not surprisingly, people already know that eating right and exercise will make them healthier. It's just making healthy choices. Oh, it's so hard. It's so, so hard. So um, how do you do it? 3% of the population could meet those four criteria. Boom. It might be just a great place to start. That article is in menshealth.com. It might be worth looking at just four things. Quit the smoking, work on your body composition, diet, and exercise. Just four things. Oh, I know, but Matt, what about the donuts? Great question, Timmy. Well, Timmy, at your wake, we will be passing around the donuts, my friend, as your heart hardens and you die. That was a little dramatization that we like to throw together for yeah, you. Yeah, who's Timmy? Timmy is my imaginary friend. Okay. That I talk to and I use as an example on the show. I thought you'd know that by now. Apparently, the listeria. Amnesia. Has been impacting from, yeah. your retention. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 